Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. OPEC plus countries uh, made a decision that uh, this was not going to be March and April of 2020. Oil market got so screwed up in the spring of 2020 that uh, you'll remember, I forget whether it was May or June, oil actually went to a minus $30 for a day or two. You actually had to pay someone $30 to take your oil. Obviously, the OPEC ministers and economists and whatnot are absolutely don't want to have an event like that again. And they had their meeting Tuesday, briefed by all their economists and whatnot. And they decided that Omicron was not going to be significant in terms of reduced oil demand. And so they went ahead with their program, their program for OPEC the last several months is to increase the amount of production that's allowed by 400,000 barrels a day per month. I guess now they're talking about February, not January. They will increase their allocation by 400,000 barrels. Now, at least half of the OPEC plus countries aren't even meeting their ceilings in December. So it probably won't be as much as 400,000 barrels a day of additional production. The oil market traded up a buck or two after the announcement. So uh, that's their view of Omicron. I hope it's accurate. The argument for quite a lot higher oil prices, the highest responsible forecast I've seen, has been to have Brent average $80 in 22 Generally, WTI, which is the U.S. version, trades within about $3 of rent. So that'd be a $77 average for for 22. The logic for that is that the producing countries are not spending enough cash flow to maintain their productive capacity. And that the areas away from OPEC Plus uh, are you know, major companies in, in the U.S. The uh, U.S. is still the largest oil producer, 11 million barrels a day. Russia and, and uh, Saudi Arabia just behind us at around 10, 10 and a half. But in the U.S., we're 11 down from 13, and it's not likely we're going to go back to be much more than 11 because the companies are being held to very strict CapEx budgets, not more than about 60% of their cash flow. Uh, operating cash flow, less interest. And so the problem is that when you put oil wells on, they start to decline. And if you're only spending 60% of your cash flow, chances are, I mean, you're doing quite well to hold your production flat. So, so the supply side seems pretty predictable and, and, uh, something, uh, to be confident about is that is trying to make a forecast. The demand side that will be impacted by COVID, by Omicron or whatever other variant comes. Also, longer term, I don't believe there's a household that 
I've had any contact with most households. I, you know, a lot of people I've contact with are oil and gas people, so they're not going to have an electric car. But I think a lot of households are going to wind up either have or will have, if they have two cars, one will be a gasoline or diesel powered car that they'll use for trips. And the other will be an electric car, which they'll use for grocery shopping well within any range where they plug it in at night. And uh, I just think that's the world going forward. The question is, what kind of a dent will that make in oil demand? And the answer is, obviously, it's going to have an impact. Is it going to have enough of an impact so that the lines of future demand and supply with the constraints on supply will cost where there's too much supply. In oil, as I guess in most commodities, but oil is the one I'm most familiar with, if those lines get a little bit out of kilter, you have an enormous amount of volatility. Uh, you know, you could if if your oil production is supply is five percent more and oil demand that is perceived by market participants is going to stay at 5%, look out below. I mean, the price of oil can drop, you know, $20 in a matter of weeks. And uh, if that situation starts to happen, so it's very important for oil demand to be flat to inclining a bit. Now, the way to think about oil demand through the world is in the developed world, Europe, U.S., Japan, Oil demand for a decade or more has been pretty flat. Why has that happened? Well, that's basically conservation. I mean, the cars that we all drive get better mileage than the cars we drove 10 or 15 years ago. And when you get to the developing world, China, India, and whatnot, you have more oil demand increase. Just remember, though, especially a place like China, they can, they can influence uh, how many electric cars are on the road? I mean, they'll they'll do things like they'll say, if you want to register a car and it's a uh, gasoline or diesel car or truck, it's going to cost you $5,000 or the Chinese equivalent $5,000. If you want to register an electric car or truck, you pay $10, so the Chinese equivalent $10. So they can definitely build up their uh, population of uh, electric powered cars and trucks. So it's a bit tricky, but so far so good on oil. On natural gas, the early warm weather all over, not just in the Northeast, has had a real impact on the uh, amount of gas demand. Fortunately, it has been getting colder and the weather typically averages out. But just as a for instance, and we follow this because of heating oil, because of Minin and Petro and Star Group, the number of heating degree days in Central Park is around 4,000 in a year, and we're already behind by about 300 to 350 degree days. I mean, that that is a very warm winter if you're, you know, 10% warmer than normal. So it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, we believe that gas is repriced at around 350. I mean, the near month in in the fall, it's gotten up to five and a half or six dollars. Now it's four dollars. That's the impact of that early warm weather. Now, in terms of LNG, which is good news because that's the growth market for U.S. gas production, uh, the crazy LNG prices in Europe have calmed down a little. 
that probably means that Russia is move, moving more gas into Europe as part of their campaign to do whatever they're going to do in the Ukraine, maybe, you know, annex the uh, northern third of it. And so LNG in Europe was uh, had gotten to like $40 or something like that. It's now back down to 28 or so on the spot market. And the same thing has happened in, in uh, China, North Asia. But still, let's... If you buy your gas for four dollars in Louisiana, two dollars to liquefy it, a dollar to transport it to Europe, two dollars to transport it to Japan. There's a huge gap there, which the, not not just the LNG exporters are generally under contract. So, but it's the people who have the contracts who are making money. Interestingly enough, with all this tension between China and the U.S., our LNG capacity to export is around 13 bees a day out of total demand of around 100 bees a day. And and it is absolutely flat out. LNG expansion is very capital intensive. It takes a while, but a combination of Chenier and Sabine Pass, Chenier and Corpus Christi, Golden Pass, which is Exxon and, and uh, the government of Gutter, Freeport, which is independent uh, outside in Texas, they're going to expand capacity. I mean, they're spending money capacity is going to be increased by three or four bees a day, and that's all incremental demand, and that will happen. You know, I think natural gas is going to do okay if it kind of reprices. I mean, the strip in 23 and 24 is like 340 and 310. The 22 price is still close to $4. If gas reprices at 350. I mean, that's very good for the public natural gas companies, most of which are Marcellus. I mean, the only way to invest directly in the Hainesville is uh, Comstock, which has Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, has all kinds of crazy securities in there. So it's a hard one to analyze or make sense of Chesapeake, which is Marcellus, come out of bankruptcy Marcellus, and then acquired Vine, you know, does have a significant chunk, and then Southwestern acquired us at Indigo, one of our companies, uh, one of the companies we invested in, and then also Geo Southern. So Southwestern's about a third Hainesville. But the key, I think, is for these companies to have enough confidence to start a dividend. You'll all remember Cabot, which turned into Cantera because it merged with Simrex, always had a dividend, and that one's done pretty well. EQT, which is the largest producer in the Marcellus, has started a dividend. We're hoping that Antero starts a dividend, which you know we still own part of. We helped found that company in Southwestern, which we own a big chunk of because of Indigo starts a dividend. What's important about a dividend? Dividend shows longer-term investors that you believe you can hold your production flat, spending only two-thirds of your cash flow or 60% of your cash flow, which is the test of whether you're really doing well. If you look at the Permian companies, uh, EOG, Pioneer, Diamondback, they're all trading at around eight times your free cash flow. In other words, your EBITDA, less your CapEx, your cash flow, they're trading for eight or nine times. The Marcellus companies were trading around six times, other than Katura. So what's the difference? I think that the difference is not their oil and, and gas. I think on balance, gas may have a little better long-term prospect than oil does. But investors want to see that commitment that you think you can keep your production flat or increase spending, uh, spending, uh, you know, only 60% of your cash flow. And with that, Mike and I have decided for the first Wednesday of the new year, 
to try to combine energy and tech. Mike has some uh, has some remarks that we discussed earlier. We're going to focus on uh, batteries and electric cars and lithium and cobalt and the difference between how the stock market's trading and how energy is trading. And with that, just going to turn it over to Mike for the next five minutes or so. And it's over to you, Mike. Okay, great. So I, I think the first thing I want to cover, which Hunt uh, and I, we didn't talk about this at first, but since we are seeing kind of a broader base sell-off in the market today. I want to I want to just remind everyone of some kind of basic things. My perspective is that there's only three ways to really have an edge in investing. The first way to have that edge is by having better information than everyone else. And as public market investors, if you're doing that, you're either uh, a congressperson or uh, you're doing it illegally. So so that we can kind of take that one off the table. The the second way you can have an edge is by doing better analysis than other people. And that's kind of what we spend all of our time on here. And and this call, that's my focus with running the fund, is doing high quality analysis to determine if we have a different perspective than what the market has. And if so, maybe we can um, we can put on a position that can that, that, that can capitalize on that. The third way you can make money in markets is behavioral. And behavioral economics piece is one that was kind of contested 30 years ago, but has now proven not to be quite accurate, is that people in general, to simplify, they don't like making money as much as they dislike losing money. So the reminder that I want to put out there today is that when you see a sell-off, whether it's in an individual security or the market in general, the question is, is this happening because of a fundamental change in the long-term prospects of this business or is it happening on a broad base because people, everybody's selling because everybody else is selling. And the reasons for a sell-off can be everything from a liquidity crunch to some bad economic numbers to to almost anything. But for a long-term investor, we're more interested in if we found some good companies in general, we'll want to stick with them and maybe buy more when the opportunity arises when there's a broader base sell-off. I heard on Bloomberg this morning, uh, one commentator is, of course, uh, what the Fed minutes show is the, the possibility of the Fed funds rate having to go up sooner. You know, the Fed has consistently said that they want to complete their tapering. In other words, reducing the amount of bond buying, which was $120 billion a month before they start to raise the Fed funds rate. And at the last meeting, uh, they... Uh, press conference, they they kind of doubled the pace of tapering so that the tapering going from 120 to zero would happen by March. And then the expectation was that they, you'd start to see increases in the federal funds rate, which is effectively zero starting in March. And I think the market was anticipating three 25 basis point increases. So by the time you got to the end of 22, it would be uh, three quarters of 1%. I think the minutes not only of possibly having to raise interest rates sooner or faster in terms of Fed funds rate, also said it may be time to start reducing the Fed balance sheet. We've talked about this in prior Wednesdays, and the Fed balance sheet is now, I don't know, eight and a half or close to $9 trillion. Before the pandemic, uh, before COVID, uh, it was around four, uh, and they were taking it down by uh, not investing uh, interest uh, 
coupons and and maturities. And every time I discuss that, I mean, you have to say, well, not reinvesting interest coupons and maturities. And it's kind of awkward. You have to use four or five words. Well, this commentator on Bloomberg came up with a a better way. They said, uh, you know, obviously people with reducing the the amount that is purchased is called uh, tapering. And you'll remember a couple of years ago, they, I guess, didn't forecast what they were doing. And they had what was called a tapered tantrum. They had to do a little reversal, of course. The term now that I, I heard for the first time this morning on the radio for uh, reducing the balance sheet is roll down. You roll down the balance sheet. The balance sheet went from four to, you know, let's say four to nine or close to nine. That's $5 trillion. If you think during the fiscal years during COVID, we, you know, overspent, the U.S. federal government overspent by about $6 trillion. You know, five of the six was in effect financed by the Fed balance sheet going up. So, the impact of the Fed balance sheet coming down is there'll be a hell of a lot less liquidity. And the question becomes, uh, does that find its way into the valuation of things? Forget about the price of a gallon of gasoline or a loaf of bread or a pound of bacon. Uh, how about the stock market? You know, How about residential real estate values, what houses cost and apartments cost and things like that? And the answer is we'll find out because to the extent that the uh, labor market is tight and, you know, the great resignation where people are leaving their jobs and people in order to hold people have to pay more, that could become an inflation factor. And what Mike said about investing is absolutely right. I mean, you can't have more information that's publicly available under Regulation FD, so forget that. Then you can do a good job of working on the public information and analyzing it, and then you can you know, have enough confidence in your work and your analysis so that you buy when other people are selling or you hold when other people are selling. And so that's absolutely the case. And to be successful as an investor and to outperform the indexes, it's what you have to uh, do. If you feel like that's too hard or too difficult or whatnot, uh, you know, you can invest in index funds. But even in index funds, you'll be tempted to uh, uh, lower your position or your exposure when the market's going down and uh, increase it when the market's going up. So if you look at a long-term index rate of return, you may do considerably poorer because you you know kind of miss time. You have a develop a tendency, which is understandable uh, when you see markets starting to go down to liquidate positions and markets going up uh, by positions. But with that, Michael probably have some comment on that. Then we can talk about the intersection of technology and energy. So back over to you, Mike. Let's jump right to the technology and energy because you and I are totally on the same page when it comes to the fire. Two kind of interesting things. One is a research article that I will include at least a summary of in our email this week that is an extension of what we discussed a few weeks ago about the S&P 500 becoming a store of value. And instead, the same author of that research report has taken the S&P 500 over the last 120 years or so and divided it by the the price of crude, the WTI. Um, And it provides an interesting perspective on the way that we utilize energy 
and what our output is. If, so if you assume that the output of S&P 500 is a rough measure of efficiency, then that ratio of those two values kind of can tell us some things. And what's what's sort of interesting is that it lines up with structural bear markets when the value of S&P 500 is too high relative to that of the WTI. The other thing to think about from that perspective is that is is crude oil really the right measure of energy? Because there's a lot of technology and effort going into developing ways and uses to store, transport, and utilize energy without burning hydrocarbons. So in the automotive markets, for example, you have pretty much every major manufacturer has now announced electric vehicles. And with that, that means we're going to have to produce a whole lot more batteries than we have in the past. So that brings up some questions about lithium. It brings up some questions about cobalt and probably a bunch of other things that we need in order to make these things. And I'll hand it back over to you, Hunt, because you're far more versed in in these things. Because I I think that, at least in general, we we think that there's going to be some sort of a crunch here. Some auto manufacturers in particular have good supply chains that may be able to, to get what they need, but some of them may not be able to. Presumably, market forces will bring more supply online, but some questions as to how long and how easy that would be. Yeah, we're going to get into this in more detail uh, next week. But on lithium, there's a lot of lithium in the world. The problem is producing it at cost and scale. The cheapest lithium is in brine deposits, and the best brine deposits are in South America, in Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia. They're very expensive to develop. Picture a uh, landscape of a brine, basically. These deposits are at altitude, let's say 6,000 feet, 7,000 feet. There's very little water where the brine is. And in order to uh, develop this as a source of, of lithium, you need water. So at the very least, in Chile, for example, there's virtually no water table. There's no, you, you don't drill wells for water. As in, in Chile, if you need water, you desalinate. You have snowfall and water runoff from that, but in all three countries, the first call on that water is for farming. If you're mining, uh, you know, developing lithium, you need to uh, get a supply of water and the most reliable supply of water that so you don't have to get shut down because there isn't enough snowfall, there isn't enough water runoff off the mountains. You have to desalinate the water, which is expensive, and then you have to pump it up, you know, like six or 7,000 feet, which is expensive. So just just to get started on a lithium project, you, you probably got capital expenditures of, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars, something like that. And then you've got to bring the water up and you've got to start, you start these ponds where you gather this brine and, and then uh, use evaporation ponds to uh, be able to gather it and process it, make it into lithium hydroxide. Most of the battery manufacturer in the world, the real technology originally was with Panasonic, that big Tesla factory in Nevada, that's really a Panasonic factory. And then LG Chem, a Korean company, got very active. And now 
the, the leader by far is a company called CATL in China, and uh, it's publicly traded. I don't think it was had a state ownership, very successful company. An awful lot of this lithium finds its way to China. There will be battery manufacturing in Europe and in the U.S., but it's really going to be dominated by non-U.S. companies. The leading way to invest in lithium is a company called Albemarle, and uh, I'll get myself up the curve on Albemarle. I've looked at it before, but from a Yorktown point of view, my day job, so to speak, it's just way too capital intensive and tricky because you could easily, despite the increased demand for uh, lithium for batteries, uh, there could be a way to make batteries with something other than lithium. So, you know, you build like a 20, 30 year asset and all of a sudden there's another way to do it than lithium. So far that hasn't happened. Also in something like this, you know, you, you can get to where the supply is more than demand for some period of time. So the price of lithium has been pretty volatile. Now there's another way to do lithium, which is from, from rock, uh, which is called spongemine. And, and that happens in Australia. There's some other places in the world. There's some places in Canada where there's high enough lithium content to make that work. But a spongemine plant is going to have a heck of a time competing with a good brine producer. Cobalt is very difficult. Half of the world's cobalt is from the Congo. and We've had an effort, one of our Yorktown companies, to try to develop cobalt in Ontario. But it's been slow and hard, and we're still at it get a significant enough reserve to go into production. Consider, and, and we'll get into a lot more of this next week, and please uh, send in questions uh, to Diane, and she'll distribute them. I think we'll go for a couple of weeks here on batteries and electric cars and kind of, the, as I said, the intersection of technology and energy because, you know, we've done a lot of work on software as a service. We've done a lot of work on chips. This is an area where, you know, I bring some expertise, Mike brings some interest and expertise. So I think for the next couple of Wednesdays, this is what we're going to focus on. With that, everyone stay safe and be well, and we'll be on with you again next Wednesday. Take care. us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.